When's the last time that you were involved in a negotiation? Maybe it was asking for a pay rise, buying a house, or securing a business deal. We go through life regularly arriving at these junctions where we can either get what we want or accept a less desirable outcome. Negotiations are basically about reaching an agreement, and doing this well requires a bit of skill. The Phoenicians were master negotiators. They didn't fight their way to success. It wasn't through war that they got the commission to build Solomon's Temple, one of the most exclusive business contracts ever awarded. And they managed to peacefully sell their goods in a world of conflict and war. But how did they do it? And what can we learn from these master negotiators? I'm Charlie Mannix Beale, and this is the Phoenicians Before Columbus podcast. Join me each week for a journey into the wonder and wisdom of the Phoenicians. This is the second part of my interview with Dr. Habib Shamoon Nicholas, author of many books about negotiation and business, including Negotiate Like a Phoenician. The Phoenicians are well known for being adventurous sailors and great merchants, curious and creative, and as a result, very wealthy. But rarely do they get credit for being outstanding negotiators. Dr. Habib Shamoon Nicholas, author of Negotiate Like a Phoenician, is an academic and consultant who's spent his career researching, practicing, and coaching business and negotiation. He argues that underpinning the success of the Phoenician Empire was not necessarily their sailing skills or their creative manufacturing, but their ability to negotiate. And he thinks that today, more than ever, we could learn a thing or two from our Phoenician ancestors. So I want to turn now, Habib, to how we can become better negotiators like the Phoenicians. But firstly, I want to ask, are people a little bit surprised when they see the title of your book, Negotiate Like a Phoenician? Yes, the majority of the people, the people that know the word Phoenician, the first thing they say, this is brilliant, you know, and it's like they think about, of course, this is something we need to learn, you know, because uh, they knew uh, or they have in their mind, the only thing they knew, they were great business people and commerce people. So when they think about it, they say, oh, this is great. Other people might not know what it is. And when they find out, they want to be like a Phoenician. So, and for some people, it's funny, you know, so I have every type of reactions. But the other question that you asked me is, uh, how do how do we become a better negotiator? Well, I have like a, a model of business negotiation in, in the book, but to mention uh, a few principles. Uh, there are a lot of them, uh, a lot of these principles, a great negotiator today applies, you know, because this is something that it goes on from, from year to year, from father to son, etc. right? These are the best practices. So you need to know your product, the customer, your competition. Uh, you need to know who the, decision makers are, who the key business decision makers are. You need to foster relation with decision makers and influencers, turn a competitor into an ally. That was typical from the Phoenicians. They would turn a competitor into a business ally. Find your niche, deliver a quality product, diversify, expand markets, develop a network, you know, earn trust. That's how they earn trust, by giving things uh, 
we call tradables, and we'll go into that in a second. Um, keep focus on your desired outcome. You know, don't, uh, I mean, you know, it was being focused. Choose your words carefully. Be careful with what you said. Stay united. Keep the peace. You know, diffuse tension when people are fighting for things that are not even important. You know, diffuse tension. Cut out the middlemen. This is important as well because sometimes our businesses that have so many middlemen and, and it destroys the essence of the business. Uh, honor customer loyalty. Loyalty was one of the key areas on Phoenician uh, negotiation. Remain humble. I like the next one, which is wrap bad news in a Twinkie. You know what a Twinkie is? Like a small sweet. You wrap your bad news in there and eat it. And that's it. You know, it's over. And be there for the long term. That's very important. You have to be there for the long term. If people say, well, it's short term. I'm going to try to take advantage of the other one. It's in the wrong business. And the most important one is use tradables. And then you need to learn how to use tradables. That's kind of, in an essence, is building a reputation. If you follow all those steps, you build a reputation for yourself, and then that reputation will keep through the years, and then it will transcend. That's the idea. Uh, you define tradables, just to recap, as a set of ideas or actions that help leverage a deal without being part of the deal, or products and services that satisfy customer needs outside our own product line that are not in competition with our offerings. Listening to that list, there's actually so many examples in business today where things like cutting out the middleman, particularly with new technology, is driving a huge, huge wave of productivity in business. But the last two you mentioned, be there for the long run and use tradables, I think are really unique to your work. But you know, Charlie, one thing is that, I mean, when I'm teaching uh, at the university, you know, and I teach the Phoenician principles, students ask me uh, often, so are you teaching ethics? You know, they say, well, is there another way to be negotiating without ethics? That, so, yes, of course, there is another way. But this is the Phoenician way, you know, the ethical negotiation. Otherwise, it will backfire on you if you don't do that. So in Negotiate Like a Phoenician, you identify seven principles of the best negotiations ever. If we could look at just three on this podcast, that would be great. And if people want to go away and um, get all seven, I'd suggest they pick up your book, Negotiate Like a Phoenician. Um, so I was just thinking, I'm going to choose two. And if you could pick the third, that'd be great. So I was thinking, create partnerships and resolve differences peacefully. And if you could add one more of your choice. So could we start with how the Phoenicians created partnerships? Sure. You know, uh, actually, this was uh, a, in a historical book of Sanford Hoss. He mentioned the principles of the Phoenicians, and they really match with the negotiation principles. Too many people... For instance, the first one, the create partnerships, too many people look for quick profit or a trade that will harm the person with whom we're negotiating. By contrast, the Phoenician principles cause these savvy traders not only to take profit for themselves, but also always leave their trading partners with some benefit as well. This ensures the Phoenicians' long-term survival and success because their trading partner was motivated to return to them for more trades and the additional benefit which came with it like they will sometimes share the profits the phoenicians wanted return business they pursue long-term relationships the phoenicians also choose their partnership wisely aligned with power and sensing shifts in it 
So when the deals were done, the Phoenicians were able to enjoy the rich benefits with their partners, with the community, and with the women, and in peace. This is according to Holst. The interesting thing here is that Phoenicians will see a partnership with the Hebrews, with the Persians, with everybody in history. So instead of making an enemy of the enemy, they will become partners. So you mentioned earlier that the Phoenicians deserve the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, was this something they carried with them into the business world as well? Yes, definitely they avoid the snares of political alliances that can bring down society. You know, So they try to stay away from politics, but the Phoenicians, for instance, there is an example of King Herod and his, the king and the king's town were in conflict. So the Phoenicians helped mediate between that king and the town. So they were very good at, at um, peacefully dealing with conflict. So we've had create partnerships and resolve differences peacefully. That's two principles. Can you tell me about another principle, one of your choice? Well, the other one that I like because it's, uh, it, it actually was surprised by it because ancient history that I am aware never had a great respect for women. The Phoenician had a principle of respect for women. Hoss mentioned it as well. Respect for women not only allowed these members of the community to contribute in a positive manner, but also allowed the Phoenicians to reach beneficial agreements which others refused to consider. So the marketplace, in fact, the market was 50% of women was the market today as well. So women were half of the market and they within the product need base. And they also, by respecting women, they understood the client market. Uh, so uh, as they would not ignore the market force of women, despite a lack of political power in most ancient cultures with whom they dealt. Because a lot of the cultures at that time even today, you know, don't respect women, but they were great respectful of women. And I understand this culture because I don't know if it's something that uh, I bring as a modern person because in my culture, in my even though I was born in Mexico, in there, I know there is a lot of macho men and things like that, the stereotype, right? In my culture, my, my grandmother was like, always respect to her. My mother respect to her. My, to my sister, there was always a great respect to my wife, to my daughter. So I always have that culture. I don't know if this comes through generations, possibly, you know, but that respect for women, I see it pretty pretty much on a Phoenician mentality. Wow, so also leading the way on gender equality. Not only women, but also different, different. Um, uh, they also respect differences and, and people with different religions, different everything, you know. So that was, that was a very flexible, in fact, they were so flexible. They have a theory. I don't know if this is true, but a lot of their, you know, when Jesus went to Phoenicia and he went to Tyre, to Biblos, you know how many times it's mentioned in the Bible? I have a, uh, you know, the, the, the women that converts Christianity, she was a Phoenician woman and uh, in the New Testament. So the point is that maybe because of that flexibility, you know, they were open and a lot of them, they converted to Catholicism. So that's interesting. All too often, talk of negotiation is framed in an adversarial sense, as if I could walk away from the negotiation as a winner, uh, as opposed to a loser. What's, what's wrong with this view of negotiation, if anything? Actually, there's nothing wrong. It depends. We need to ask ourselves, are we looking to improve in a given negotiation our results and also the relationship or only the results? 
If we're looking to maximize the relationship and the results, the answer, well, there's something wrong with this approach, you know, because you cannot kill your relationship by being adversarial, right? But the, then the, the, the adversarial strategy is not the best one. But for the situation where you, in this situation where you want to increase, maximize relation as well as the results, then the better approach is a collaborative one, the win-win scenario. However, it is a one-time, if you have a one-time deal and you don't care about the relationship, then perhaps the adversarial approach is the best one. My approach in life is a win-win. You know, it's, it's more than win-win. You know, I would say beyond the win-win. Beyond the win-win would be the Phoenician, which you, uh, you can be in a win-win situation, but it's not fair. Or maybe you won't have an impact long-term to everybody. So I think the long-term relationship, and I can explain with an anecdote later on, you know, the difference on these three types of negotiation. So you also say in Negotiate Like a Phoenician that a win-win scenario does not equate to if you scratch my back, I scratch yours. According to you, it's not as simple as that. Why do you say that? And and how is the concept of tradables different? Okay, well, in, I, I'll, I'll do my best to explain it with a small uh, proverb. You know, the idea of if you scratch my back, I scratch yours, is the expression from Latin, duo this. I do this for you, and you do this for me, right? It's different than tradables. Let's, let's look at this concept of tradables. I think it's very well understood if we use the analogy of an old Phoenician proverb. I will read it first in Phoenician. It's Amel Emnich Ukeb Belbacher. Well, this means, my interpretation is, do well and throw it to the ocean. Or throw it to the sea. Okay, same thing. Do well and throw it to the sea. Why? First, because the sea is so abundant and so large that no one will see you. That's the first thing. No one will see you because of that abundance. Second, because of the same thing, the, the sea immensity, you won't see who you are giving it to. So they won't see you and you won't see them. And then third, the sea is so immense that you can do well all your life. And it won't be enough. You can continue doing, you know, but uh, even all your life. So you won't see them. They won't see you. You can do well all your life. And you, I mean, there's always space to do more well. But there is a fourth one that the sea is dynamic. It's not static. So even if you don't expect it, even if you are giving something, you don't see the person, they don't see you, you can continue giving everything that you can. And even if you don't expect it, the sea is dynamic. And what it will happen, it will return you with a huge wave at some point, at some time in life, a huge wave of love, goodness, wellness, blessings. Maybe you won't get it on your lifetime, but somebody else will in the next generation. That is when the concept of transgenerational, this doesn't come first, maybe comes to the next one. Also, it's not direct reciprocity because you do it to somebody and maybe somebody does it to somebody else. You don't expect it back, but it maybe came back to you or to the next generation or from somebody else. It's different than the, than the question of direct reciprocity. It's more indirect. And also, at the end, you build a reputation and credibility by generating tradables onto others. 
And then before you know it, your reputation will transcend generation. And they will say, oh, that guy, this guy was such a great guy. And then and then they do something good for you because they knew your grandfather or because your grandfather did something to them. So it's something indirectly. So this is the the um, the wisdom of the ages. In you scratch my back and I scratch yours, is you expect something quickly or whenever from the other one that you're doing something for them. In trade-offs, it's not. You're not expecting it, but you will get it anyway, even if you don't expect it because of indirect reciprocity. When I use tradables, I'm kind of sweetening the deal somehow for, for the other person, but the transaction isn't contingent on that thing. So you give an example in the book of an estate agent who demonstrates this very well. Uh, he gives the new homeowners a hamper or a bottle of wine once they've moved into their new house, which is different from the estate agent saying, if you agree to take this house, then and only then will I throw in this nice gift. Do you have another example of tradables in action? I remember I went one time to the dentist's office and when the dentist, I didn't know the dentist, but it happened that uh, the grandfather of that dentist, you know, uh, he knew my grandfather, but I didn't know, that. we didn't know each other. And my grandfather did something great for that dentist. I don't even know what it is, you know. When I went to the dentist and then he knew who I was and then we started talking and that, he didn't charge me. I mean, he didn't want to charge me because um, he remembers that his grandfather helped uh, my grandfather helped his grandfather. And the point is, do you think a grandfather helping another grandfather, in this case, is going to expect something? Probably not, right? But it gets to several generations and maybe you get it, you know. So this is one really crazy example. So that example you just gave links to this idea of transcendental and transgenerational negotiation, uh, relationship, reputation, which transcends generations. And one such example of transgenerational negotiation in the context of the Phoenicians, uh, and indeed tradables, is the story of Solomon's Temple. How did the Phoenicians end up building Solomon's Temple? Well, that's a very good question because that's, that was a great re building relationship that King David from uh, Israel, he had a great business relationship with, with King Hiram, which is the king, the Phoenician king. So um, King David decided that was not his time to build the temple. And this is a great example of transgenerational. You know, one generation is King David. The next generation is King Solomon, the son of King David. So when King David didn't, uh, he decided not to build the temple, then you might think, if you are in the modern days, you might think, oh, I lost my client. You know, if you were King Hiram from, from uh, Phoenicia, uh, you might think, oh, I lost my client because uh, he's not going to build it. But that was not the case because he has a great business relationship, not only with King David, but also with his son, King Solomon, which uh, is, the, an is, is a great example of transgenerational negotiations. In other words, it goes from one generation to the next one. And the reason to, it was like that is because King Hiram was a Phoenician king with uh, a lot of reputation and credibility and, and a great king. So King Hiram maintained the relationship not only with the father, King David, but also with King Solomon, the, the son. And that's the reason why he kept the long-term relationship. And he built that relationship by 
regularly sending gifts and kind words to King David and, and subsequently his son. This was more than just a political exercise. This was a way of establishing a strong business relationship built on, on trust and, and mutual respect. Exactly. And, and, and the fact is that uh, in, the, in the book we talk about King Solomon gave pretty much an open book, open check to King Hiram. Like, here it is, you can do anything you want. So, in other words, it's like an open book type of work. There is a lot of credibility and respect in order to do that, to give like, an, like a blank check, you know, from one to another. I ask a lot of the clients, who does that to a service provider? Probably nobody. So that means you have to trust him a lot. And, and there was a, that's an example of a great relationship. So the Phoenicians had a great deal of trust from King Solomon, but they must also have had a reputation as being great craftspeople because they had the resources and the materials, the workforce to take on such a large-scale project. And if you go back to the principles, if you apply all those principles, you can become like that. You know, it's a matter of, uh, you know, applying the principles. It's tough because you need to be very fair. You need to be very open, very honest. So a lot of people are not like that, and that's why they don't become credible and that's that's so to negotiate like a Phoenician that's a great example you know King Hiram. You have a handy checklist for if a negotiation isn't going your way what are the six P's of negotiation? Well in every negotiation you need to ask the question where could the bottleneck of the negotiation be? You know where can the bottleneck can get when when the negotiation can get stopped in which of these six P's so the first one is the person that you are negotiating with, or many people, uh, the culture, their uh, personality, etc. You know, the process. Is this a negotiation that takes a lot of process? Or the prognosis. Is there a plan B that we have or not? Or plan C? The power. Are we dealing with people with the same power or asymmetry of power? And then you have the, the problem. Are we dealing with a conflict here? Uh, and then the other P is the product. Is the product a great product or do we have some areas of opportunity? So sometimes the negotiation gets stuck into one of these P's. So the idea of having these six P's from the deal, deal methodology is to analyze like uh, the, uh, with a vision, uh, with a great vision, you know, uh, where the negotiation could bottleneck. Is it on the person? So then I plan a strategy. Is it on the process? Then I plan another strategy and so on. And this moves in, in real time. And the idea is of, of this tool is like Plato of the ancient historian said, for the whole to be well, the parts has to be well. In order for the whole negotiation to be well, the six piece has to be well. That's, that's the idea. I think it's very useful because you're suggesting that Almost always, if a negotiation is stalling or not going to plan, if you break it down and sit down and say, right, person, process, power, product, problem, prognosis, if you look at each one of those and address them again, then you're likely to find out what the issue is. All too often, you could leave a negotiation thinking, hmm, they just didn't like it or they didn't understand what was going on. But if you break it down in these six ways and address them individually, you're more likely to find a solution. That's exactly right. And and then and then maybe it was the problem with the person and then you solve that issue and then it moves to the prognosis and then so it's a moving part, you know. But it's interesting at least to have a tool to analyze, right? 
So, for example, what might a problem with a person be? Well, uh, I had a situation in a real case where uh, the image of the uh, seller, you know, it was not very professional and the buyer was uh, rejecting the purchase, you know. And when I asked, uh, because I was coaching the seller, when I asked the buyer, I said, what is it that we can do so that we can move on to close the deal? And this lady told me, uh, lack of professionalism. And I asked, what do you mean? And then she said, don't you see how she is dressed? It's not appropriate. And so it, it's a simple thing. So when you realize sometimes people are don't dress certain way, the image that they portray, that could be a bottleneck for the other one. And the buyer might say, I don't want to buy for that. That's very unprofessional. It's small things that happen. You know? So that was an example. And when we fixed that, everything was okay. And people thought it was the price or it was uh, the product. It was not one or the other. It was the, the salesperson. It was being rejected because the way it was dressed. And it's because it wasn't appropriate for that type of industry. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So when you sense a bottleneck in a negotiation, do you try and ask the person you're negotiating with what the problem is? Or do you try and identify it as you're going? No, I, I assess them uh, it, as they go in, and then I'll try to brainstorm them to try to understand where is this bottleneck, and then uh, and then I, I prove, you know, that I ask, okay, let's try this now. For instance, if the seller was a man, but then you need to move and have a woman, you change the variable. And then depending on those variables that you're changing, you test. It's like a trial and error type of scenario. It's like an, an engineering process. And then you say, okay, by asking questions, you find out, where is this bottlenecking? Definitely. And then you go back and they say, okay, so I, I, then I want to generate this option to satisfy that and to move on. I know when we think about negotiation, often we have an image of people being forceful, perhaps with time pressure or, or bluffing or misleading the person that they're negotiating with in order to achieve a certain outcome. Is, are these tactics ever acceptable? And are they even a, a form of negotiation? Yes, there. You see, bluff. For instance, bluff is a tactic, you know, of negotiation that is important to gain time or to shift the perception of reality of the other, among other things. It just depends on the context, on the situation, the culture you are negotiating with, the relationship between the parties, short term, long term, uh, whether it's okay or not to use this type of tactics. Because sometimes you need to to gain time and to it's okay to say you are. In, the middle of the negotiation and all of a sudden you don't know what to do so it's better you have to ask your question it's better to not do anything or just say oh i have a stomachache let me go to the restaurant and come back you need to gain time so you need to have a tactic or you can say can we have a break that's perfectly okay because you need to think about things not when people try to corner you into a corner you know and try to get you pressurized so you need to de depressurize so it's okay. Yes, it's okay. It depends on the context. In the that's not being dishonest. It's just you need to get out. Better to have a better credible thing. But buy some time. Always good. Yeah, buy time. Buy time or change the perception of the other one. A, a typical one is when they say, "Oh, you know, I'm buying this, but uh, I'm selling this, but I have several several buyers. You know, and maybe you don't have any buyer. So I mean, you just change the perception of the other one because if they know you don't have, you've been selling it for. 10 years and, and nobody has even cared about that, then they say, oh, you're 
you have a small power of negotiation, lower power, then they might say, you know, yes, I yes, we've been selling for, and we have several people interested, even if you don't have anybody interested, right? So it's kind of like a small tactic, a small block, right? So you say in Negotiate Like a Phoenician that negotiating is all about adjusting to what is important for others while maintaining what is essential for us. How can we establish what is essential for us in a negotiation and, and what we're willing to compromise on as well? And generally, how should one prepare for a negotiation? Well, if we compare American labor culture with Mexican labor culture, just a, you know, like a quick example, business etiquette in the U.S. is to have a quiet, silent work atmosphere. There are, however, always exceptions to the rule. My first observation when I I was working in a company, in a work environment, in an Anglo-Saxon uh, dominated work environment, was that my peers were doing their job from 8 to 5 in a very silent mode. You cannot listen to anything, you know. It was so boring for me. My first impression was very depressing, especially coming from a noisy work environment culture. In carrying out my work in the U.S., I initially behaved as I had always done in Mexico. I was outspoken and loud. Others were complaining when I spoke on the phone with client with my door open. Apparently, I annoy everyone within vocal range. I didn't know back then, but now I know. In my culture, it is it was okay to be outspoken and loud. Being quiet was very uncomfortable. I began closing my office so that I could continue to conduct business in the style to which I was accustomed. Occasionally, I would forget. And one day, the office manager suggested that I speak more softly and be more cautious of my surroundings. That day, I learned to act and behave accordingly to our natural environment. And when we change environments, we better adapt. The work environment is often non-negotiable, so we must negotiate with ourselves for the sake of producing a friendly and productive work environment. But you said, how do you establish what is essential and what is not? Uh, in this example, the essential thing is to get your work done professionally. However, it was willing, for me, I was willing to compromise the work environment, changing from a noisy environment to a more quiet one. You know, there are things that are negotiable, there are things that are non-negotiable, and things that you don't need to negotiate, they are given. You need to ask yourself, what are your priorities? Also know what your alternative to the agreement are. What happens if there is no agreement? Do you have an alternative? Who has the power to make the decision? Am I negotiating with the decision maker, the influencer, or just wasting my time? What are your real needs and the other? Ask the other side why they need whatever they are negotiating for, so you can understand the interest behind the position. And then negotiate interests and all positions, and then there you can generate options. We can talk about different types of negotiation at this point if you don't have any other questions. Yeah, please. I think it'd be helpful to draw some distinctions. Well, what, we, what I was discussing in this example of the uh, labor differences work at an office you know, between the U.S. and Mexico, which is typical scenario in, in some situations, I was describing a, a little bit how to prepare, like knowing what the alternative you have, what the alternative of the other has, if you don't have an agreement. We're talking here about two types of negotiation. First, the haggling type is called distributive 
or zero-sum fixed cake negotiation. That's what they call it as well. It's like haggling, you know, going to the market and, and see, I give you 10 or I give you 8 and then you start haggling, right? Or the integrative or Harvard method negotiation. That's the second one. The integrative is more focused on interest and the distributive is more focused on positions for each side. Now, the integrative is more what we call win-win. And in order for the integrative to work, you need to understand the why or what for of the positions of the other side so that you understand the interest. And based on those interests, you need you create options that are legitimate and based on references or standards, and then you can get to an agreement. If you don't get to an agreement, you have what in Harvard called BATNA, best alternative to negotiate agreement. Either you get to an agreement or you do BATNA. So, however, definition negotiation is a third type. And the third type that we have proposed is the called transgenerational, transcendental negotiation. For instance, the negotiation between Hebrew King David and Phoenician King Hiram. After King David decided not to build the temple, we talk about this, the next generation, King Solomon, son of King David, negotiated with King Hiram. So the relationship went from Hebrew king's father to son and Phoenician king Hiram. So it transgenerational. But also transcendental because it goes to an ex It not necessarily is father to son, etc. It could be friend to grandfather. To, the reputation transcends. Your negotiation actions today impact not only today's environment, but future negotiations positively. Well, to, to, to better understand the transgenerational or transcendental negotiation, I tell you about this case. Uh, a few years ago, I went with this group of graduate students from Houston, MBA students, studying the Masters of Business Administration, and the trip was intended to explore Phoenician route in Cadiz. Along the way, we also visited Toledo, Spain, where even today you can sense an atmosphere of tolerance and respect for cultural differences. You know, there we witness how Muslim, Christians, and Jews live in harmony. And as a united community with respect that has been passed from generation to generation, even today. To experience this cultural particularity, I asked my students to make an in-situ real negotiation practice. So I remember especially my student, John, he came from Texas, and he wanted to buy a souvenir from Toledo. He entered the local store and began a game of haggling with the owner. And I remember vividly because I was uh, observing, you know, and I wanted to stop him if he was going the wrong direction. And this was haggling. This, this is just a haggling exercise. The piece of art cost 50 euros. But John offered 25. The owner replied, no way. John adjusted the offer and said, okay, 26. The owner refused again. The student made a counter offer, 27. The owner continued with the same answer until the offer reached 40 euros. Then at that point, I stopped it and I privately asked John to ask the owner why it was not possible. You know, at that point, John hasn't asked a question. To go from distributive to integrative, you ask questions. What for or why not? That's what we were talking. The positions of them and interest. You know, we talk about position and interest base. So anyway, he asked 
the owner, and the owner smiling confessed that he could not sell the piece because he has a small defect. Defect. He has a small defect. But if John insisted, the owner could let him have it for five euros. Can you imagine that? There are very important lessons in this experience. The first is to listen and understand. The other is to find out why he's not agreeing to our offer, what his interests are, and what motivates or demotivates him. Understanding only follows questioning the shop owner's refusal to sell the piece. When the imperfection was unperceivable, what would the owner lose if he accepted John's first offer? I asked him, what would have happened when John noticed the defect in the piece upon arrival back home? He will be likely to think that the owner has deceived him. John should have inspected the piece before making an offer. Why did the owner insist on not selling it without giving explanation? Well, all of these questions I asked, and after purchase, the owner told us that to sell something in his store is to sell something that represents this community. If a traveler is dissatisfied and complains about price, quality, or anything, it will generate a bad image of Toledo for future customers. Would somebody from Houston Harbor ill feelings towards Toledo for buying a defective objective years ago? I asked the owner. That was makes Toledo different. We care about our reputation. How many business people care more about the reputation of their community than generating profit? Surely very few. However, Toledo, which homes Jewish, Christians, and Muslim community, continue to uphold a commercial spirit of respect that transcends generations. A transcendental negotiation is based on values and cultural principles. However, we cannot discover these negotiations unless we are silent in order to listen and ask the necessary questions to understand the dimension the other is negotiating. In short, the transcendental dimension of the owner was not the same as John, who was simply practicing the game of haggling. You see two different dimensions. One is the haggling, I want to get the best price. And the other one is in the dimension of, I don't want my reputation to be damaged. I, I don't know if you can see there that to go from the second, which is the integrity negotiation to transcendental, is also based on interest, but it is longer term and also impact on society and reputation can you see that yeah collective interests collect exactly so that's that was more definition style and that's what we and that's what we're promoting thank you to dr habib shamoon nicholas a true phoenician for sharing his time knowledge and wisdom you can check out more of his work in the description for this podcast Join me next week for a fascinating conversation with a dear friend of mine who has spent many years reviving and mastering the ancient practice of making Phoenician purple dye using sea snails. Please do me a favor and give this podcast five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. And share it with your friends and family. <laughs>